0: All right, good afternoon. Thanks uh, to ATARC for producing our latest podcast. I'm Jim Kovach with Zimperium. And today we have Ariel Bain from CISA. Uh, Good afternoon, Ariel. I'll ask you to go ahead and do a quick introduction to yourself.
1: Hi, good afternoon, Jim. I'm glad to be here, thank you. Um, So as mentioned, I am Ariel Bain. I am the Supervisory Cybersecurity Advisor and Cyber State Coordinator for the state of Delaware, but also for the state of Pennsylvania. So I also am wearing a a dual hat right now. I am the acting chief of cybersecurity for the entire region three. So if you're familiar with the FEMA or HHS um, regional offices, we mimic the same regional layout.
0: Awesome, the great states of Delaware and Pennsylvania. Yeah. The first state, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Delaware? It is. (laughs) A little bit of history there. Uh, awesome. Well, thank you for taking the time today to chat with us. Um, we we kind of want to talk and and you know for the audience get a better understanding of what your guys's mission is. Uh, maybe some uh, of the types of services that you offer and to who, um, and just maybe an overall introduction to uh, exactly you know what do the cybersecurity. Uh, advisors and or state coordinators uh, do on a a day-to-day basis?
1: Okay, sounds good. So as mentioned, I represent CISA. So CISA is the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Uh, We are a subcomponent under DHS, Department of Homeland Security, and we were developed in 2018 under the Trump administration. So a lot of people don't know that, but we are the newest government organization uh one of our missions is to lead the national effort to understand to manage and also to reduce the risk of not only our cyber infrastructure but also our physical infrastructure and so you'll hear a le- mention today of what it, critical infrastructure those are typically who our partners are and they range from the federal government state governments all the way down to our local stakeholders and partners um, Another thing I want to mention is our vision is really to secure and develop resilient critical infrastructure for our American people. And so when you think of critical infrastructure, think of like those things that are so important to our nation that without them or if they're interrupted, we don't have public safety, we don't have uh, public health, and it also impacts our national economy, right? It's our national co- or it's our American way of life, really. This um, is unique uh, because we foster partnerships right so we mainly work with those critical infrastructure owners and operators and they when you think about water and when you think about different utilities um, like electricity you think of our healthcare, care you think about our transportation systems if you notice most of them are owned either by the state or by private sector organizations so most of the time I work with those that audience and not so much the federal government uh, however we are a regulator for the government but we're unique because we foster those partnerships, right? And so we provide boost on the ground um, capabilities to our folks that are, you know, in the areas where we live. So as I mentioned, we're regionalized. And so we have 10 different regions. And so I'm in region three. So I work and live in Delaware, right? So I am familiar with the critical infrastructure that they have there. I have partnerships with The FBI, I have partnerships with uh, the Secret Service, they have the field office there, all of our elections folks, all of our critical infrastructure, and I'm very intimate. Um, And so that is kind of how we do the work that we do. We collaborate. You'll see from today's discussion, I'm not the smartest person, but it's those partnerships that allow us to really carry out that mission of securing our cybersecurity um, and critical infrastructure from a physical standpoint.
0: Thank you for uh, breaking that down, that's super helpful. And so as you described sort of your day to day, it strikes me that you're kind of out and about and you're out in the field and you're very mobile, let's just say, (laughs) taking full advantage of being, uh, you know, mobile or having a a mobility type of um, aspect to your work. Um, So let's talk a little bit about the intersection Uh, of what you do out there and and mobile security uh, for that matter. Um, You know, give us a sense if you don't mind or your perspective on the criticality and the use of mobile devices for yourself in terms of your team and your teammates and your colleagues and doing their work. But then also as you see it uh, and the level of importance that it has uh, for you know, the broader public and citizens
1: in general? So I look at it like this. Everyone has a mobile device, right? It's the, the thing that you can take with you that you can put in your back pocket. It connects us not only to 911 services, it connects us to, um, you know, our businesses today, it connects us to our children. It's very vital in how not only we do business for our organizations, but how we carry our personal lives. You know, when you're paying a bill, typically you're on the go and you might pay it when you're on the bus. Or if you need to call 911, nine times out of 10, you're probably calling from your mobile phone because it's already on you. Um, So I think, you know, increasingly we'll become more dependent on our phones. And in fact, if you look at it, right, you can control your lights, and you can control your alarm system. You can control your car from a phone. And so that connectivity, you know, is vital. It's vital for us to survive today.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. In fact, uh, we're very much in that that space of ensuring uh, citizen safety, citizen security as it relates to their mobile transactions when they're conducting business with uh, their local government entity. And you know a lot of folks are perhaps not aware of the threats that exist uh, you know to the mobile device. Can you share your thoughts or your experience or per, you know perspective on the threat landscape? and how you see that being you know, perhaps a risk or a danger to, to the citizens and what you would you know, suggest or recommend folks do uh, that might be listening today to kind of amp up their, their mobile security, be it you know, behaviors that they should uh, employ. You know, we hear a lot about, hey, before you click on a link, you know, know that it's more than likely a phishing attempt Uh, to that regard. So, you know, user behavior, but uh, I'm curious what your thoughts are on just, uh, you know, the threat landscape in general, and then uh, what folks might be able to do.
1: Definitely. Um, So I think one of the things I look at mobile phones, right, as kind of like, you know, how Log4J was one of the biggest scares for us. I look at it like that. And I look at it like that, because it's, you know, our mobile phones, There are so many of them, right? They're, OCONUS or you know outside of the US and they're also here in the US. But one of the things is everyone doesn't update their phone. And that same kind of thing is like with Law 4J, we were so worried about how we would update all those phones to patch this vulnerability. Now, most people that I know, it's not a common practice for them to have auto updates on. And so one of the things they have to deal with is all the vulnerabilities that can be exploited based off of kind of, you know, Trojans or getting into their devices you know, by them clicking on a link, right? So update your device is one thing I would say. I think it's probably one of the biggest things that you could do to protect your devices. Um, Another thing is now a lot of mobile phones, they natively have a lot of different security features built into them. I say, you know, I recommend that all people, you know, who are using mobile devices, they start to look at those things. Because right now you can actually do private browsing um, so that, you know, privacy information doesn't get out there. Um, You can also have it to where you can turn off your location services, right? Because that's a safety thing. If people know where you're at and they're tracking your location, you know, and someone is looking for you or you're a target um, by activists or any group, you know, they now have that location data. And so there's a lot of different, you know, native settings within the phones that a lot of people can do now to protect themselves. Um, Also, you know, ad tracking and making sure that the, the different apps that they're using, they're not collecting information that they don't necessarily want them to collect. You know, some applications for what reason, I don't know, but they'll collect your location information. A lot of people don't know this, but Spotify knows when you're taking a run in the morning, right? So what if, like, you know, your mobile phone is what you carry around, but what if Spotify is hacked? And now people have, you know, that, I And mean, this is just a scenario, it hasn't happened, but now people, you know, have that, information about you and they know when you take a run in the morning. So that's something we need to be concerned about because we're so ever connected and we always have our phones on us. So those are just a couple of things.
0: Yeah, that's super helpful. And you know what a lot of folks don't realize uh on the on the app side is what might be a very benign or safe or what we think would be safe mobile application to help with a wellness, you know, maybe to help, you know, your diet improve or you know making healthier choices. Um, But to your point, the app is asking for permission to turn on your microphone, to turn on the camera uh, when, you know, it probably really doesn't need to. And so for the audience and folks out there, you know, look at the app that you're using and be conscious that a lot of these apps will be leaky, as we like to use the phrase of your private information. And that data uh, can leave our shores, as it were, uh, and go to foreign OCONUS countries that you probably necessarily don't want your data going to. They could also be malicious. So you know, leaking private information or personal information is one thing, but they can also be malicious in the sense that they could be Trojan horses, where you think, again, you're using it to improve your wellness, but in fact, it is harvesting your credentials. And I think exactly. that's one of the areas where folks maybe not be not too overly familiar with the fact that, well, what does my device have? Um, it's it's a little funny story here. I'll, I'll say there was a meme not too long ago where on it was a picture of the mobile device and all the different things that are on the mobile device, and it said, you know, me, everything I have about myself is right here on my mobile device. And then below that it said hacker everything about your personal life, I have right here on your mobile device, right? So the, the notion being that once you compromise uh, the mobile device, uh, there is a treasure trove of information. In the federal landscape and perhaps DOD, I would argue, it's almost like if, familiar, if folks are familiar with the SF-86, the SF-86, of course, is the background security clearance document you know, the mobile device in some ways is a living digital SF-86. To your point, yeah. Ariel, it goes everywhere you go. And so it can really give uh, an indicator. But um, uh, to that end, let's pivot. Uh,
1: so I want that. Before we switch gears, I did want to piggyback because you made me think of two more big things. Um, oh, please, go one, ahead. One is supply chain compromise, right? Because when you think of a mobile device, you know, it has firmware, you know, it has memory, it has so many different devices that typically are not built in the United States. They're outsourced. And so we, that creates so many different blind spots because that means our mobile devices has been in so many people's hands and we don't know how our devices have been tampered with necessarily. And so it's something that we have to increasingly be aware of that, you know, bad actors may have compromised, you know, legitimate third parties and injected malicious, you know, code or potentially done something to the hardware of our devices that we use every day. But I was also thinking of um, smishing, which is phishing, but, you know, with SMS. A lot of people click on stuff, like from your mobile phone.
0: Well, absolutely. And those targeted SMS-based text message smishing or, you know, phishing uh, threats and attacks are becoming more and more sophisticated and they're also becoming more and more personal. They're, they're getting clever about pulling on the personal lever of an individual. You know, they're, they're they seem to have great timing. Uh, you know, uh, oh yes, I did just come from seeing my doctor and I did just submit for a prescription and now I'm getting a text message that says there's a problem with my prescription meds, you know, click here to resolve. Well, they don't know that, but they're taking a shot at it in terms of, you know, is it just perfect coincidental timing? And so if you're in the mindset where that occurred, um, that that's an easy one. That could trip you up very quickly. Um, another is that I've seen is, hey, Ariel, somebody is accessing your credit report uh, currently, you know, please click here to see who's accessing your credit report in real time. Right. And, and that can, that can spark, uh, an emotional reaction. I know it did for me, uh, when I got it and they almost got me and I do this for a living. Right. I almost, because I was like, who in the heck is trying to get my credit report? Me me too. (laughs) Yeah. so, yeah, here we are two cybersecurity people, right. (laughs) And, uh, those bad actors almost got us. So that's, those are great points. And, and that is, you know, one threat vector uh, that has skyrocketed in particular now that a lot of folks are doing remote work um, in government and in, in industry for that matter. Um, so the the phishing across the board and on, on an email side, it's, it's more difficult on a mobile device to ascertain whether it's a, a legit email or not, you know, things are hidden and you can't kind of see the address and it just it's a lot more difficult. Um, so that's certainly one threat vector. The other the other threat vector folks don't realize um, that I've seen is, and I'm curious for your thoughts on it, but when we go to a, a coffee shop and, you know, sort of indiscriminately connect to a Wi-Fi uh, and not really perhaps paying attention to the fact that that could be a rogue Wi-Fi uh, and, you know, somebody with bad intentions. And once they own you on the network, they pretty much can get to your device in a variety of ways as well i um, curious for your thoughts on, on that
1: one. Yeah, so that is actually, per- so I've actually used a mobile threat defense system before. Um, and when I did that, I got so many pings for all of the surrounding and secure Wi-Fi that was around me, right, that had weak configurations or just open networks. And so what that means is, you know, it allows you know, credentials to get through. It allows your PII, your PHI information to get through. And people don't typically, they don't think about when, you know, they go to a, their, you know, favorite coffee shop, that someone could be sitting there with a network sniffer and just collecting information to use it later and to do a later on that day, or maybe months down the line, or they might even sell that information. But you're right. It's not something that people typically think about, but I, I like the approach that a lot of you know, states are taking too, because I think cybersecurity is, you know, you'll hear us talk a lot about it being a shared responsibility. So you'll see big metropolitan areas that are providing um, MTD or mobile threat defense systems to their residents. And I like that approach. I think, you know, sharing is caring and, you know, it really is a shared responsibility.
0: Yeah, actually, I'm glad you mentioned that Uh, one of the biggest cities in uh, the nation, New York City as that very service, in fact. Uh, They recognized that they were encouraging the use of their broadband and free Wi-Fi's throughout the city and conduct online transactions, whether it's renew uh, registrations or pay taxes or what have you. So more and more people were going online to conduct those transactions and activities um, and more often than not were doing so from their mobile device. So New York City uh, uh, created something called NYC Secure, I encourage folks to go take a look at it. It's out on the, the app stores uh, and it, it fulfills that exact scenario uh, area where it gives you a greater degree of protection. The last one I'll mention before we move on, and I do want to get to zero trust and a couple of other things, but the last one I'll mention for the audience in case they're not overly aware, uh, but it's also the device risks that uh, we might encounter. So the scenario that I always uh, try to introduce is, you know, you're your phone battery is starting to dwindle, um, but yet you still got a full day ahead of you. maybe you're at the airport or what have you. Uh, In fact, the FBI issued warning notices on this one where, oh, you know, again, I'm running low. I'm just gonna go over here to this USB charging station and plug right in. And when in fact that could be spoofed such that once you plug it in, a bad actor on the other end of that could actually compromise or root your device right then and there. So, from for the audience, I would highly encourage you to always bring your adapter and use the electrical outlet and not a USB charging station. Again, even though you might feel or look as it as if it's legitimate, uh, those things have been spoofed in the past. So that's another threat vector for folks to to think about. Okay, uh, pivoting now a little bit because I know CISA is a big proponent, uh, as is uh, you know other organizations across the federal government, of zero trust architectures. And I was hoping you could maybe give us your perspective on how CISA is addressing it, in particular from a mobility standpoint. I know there was a um, document, and I'm drawing a blank on what they were calling it. Maybe you can help me. Uh, not too long ago, I think in the springtime, uh, about the alignment of mobility with uh, zero trust. but. Can you talk a little bit about uh, sort of how you guys are approaching zero trust with the states and the locales and then the alignment to mobile?
1: Uh, Yes, most definitely. Um, So we put out a few documents um, talking about zero trust and really adopting uh, the framework. Most of those documents came out because of Colonial Pipeline, uh, the ransomware attack that they had experienced. If you look at that, that was probably one of the the first times in, you know, American history where we've seen a cyber attack really play out uh, real It caused a lot of people to, you know, create, c- create a lot of panic for a lot of us. You know, in Southern states, gas lines were really long and it appeared that there was a sh- shortage on gas. Um, and so we had a lot of guidance come out um, around federal governments and how they could adopt a zero trust. As far as it comes to mobility, we just put out a document That was back in March, 2022, so pretty recent, right? Uh, We allowed public comments up until April, right? So for about 30 days. But I really like that document because it really came from a place of, you know, everyone hears about zero trust, but nine times out of 10 when you hear about zero trust, people aren't talking about mobility. People aren't including mobile devices and BYOD BYOD and GSE. They're typically not including that in the conversation. So that document, which was called the Zero Trust to Mobility Guidance for uh, Federal Enterprise Mobility, that document gave a pathway in order to achieve that. And so while it was only written for the federal government, you'll quickly see that any organization you know, can adapt that.
0: That's great. Yeah. And what I particularly appreciated about the document was how it was uh, sectioned or organized, I guess you could say. Into the various, you know, functions and capabilities, and how it supports zero trust. And one of those was a, a, a topic that's near and dear to me, which is a testing of the device. So a lot of oxygen currently, when it comes to zero trust conversations, focuses on the identity, and identity is important, but um, I, I would contend that. If if Jim is Jim and that's great, we've you know leveraged you know iCam or some identity management to, to leverage who uh, to validate my identity. But if my device is not attested uh, to ensure that it's not containing a malicious payload, then all we have really done is is when I bring in the attack, is they know where to go to find the source, right? Oh, it came in on Jim's device. Fantastic. So. I'm curious for your thoughts on, you know, how does device or how does identity and device go hand in hand and and what your experience or thoughts are on that, especially as it relates to zero trust?
1: So I'll take it a step further, Jim. You know, how like a lot of people, you know, are worried about the identities and authentication and, you know, access by users. I think a lot of people also are thinking about, you know, access to their applications, what applications they have. You know what network devices they have, who's on the network, um, utilization of the network. They're also worried about the data, the integrity of the data, the confidentiality of data, but all those things, right? They never think about the device. You know, it's always something that typically gets less off. But I like that you're bringing, you know, into the conversation because you're right. Devices are typically not tested for tampering, um, and it's a it's a very easy attack vector. You know, it might be a malicious payload or, you know, while you're traveling, it might be possible that, you know, a a foreign entity tried to change the integrity on your machine and that's no no longer safe to use. So in the document, we specifically call out a couple of things. So for device device, uh, attestation specifically, some of the things that we recommend for federal organizations that any other organization can adopt um, is that mobile threat defense. Um, we also look at using hardware for integrity, uh, specifically the T- the TPM module, which stands for the trusted the trusted platform module. I believe is that right, Jim? That sounds
0: right. Yeah. <laughs>
1: but, yeah. So that that basically makes sure that your device, from you know a hardware perspective, has not been changed, and I think it's very important uh, because they go hand in hand. Yeah, we want to know the people on our network, but we also want to know if, let's just say, you know, we trust Alice, right? Alice works for our organization. We've allowed her on the network. It seems as though she's logging in from a legitimate, you know, iPhone device that we provided her for. And so because of those two things, we're giving her access. We don't check for that middle part of looking at the device. And that's very important because it's the pathway to getting access to the network, to getting access to our data and to getting access to our applications. I couldn't agree so I more. That, yeah, I hope that helped kind of frame why both are important.
0: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, I know we're coming up on our time, but I do have one last thing relative to the cyber grant program um, that was uh, initiated and I do believe executed uh, late summer, uh, earlier in the fall. And I was just curious if you had any uh, updates on that, or what your thoughts were? How did that go? Were were, were state and locales you know, taking uh, advantage of it? And 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 um, you know, the submissions. That, can you give us a sense of how successful you guys anticipate that grant? Because it was pretty sizable. If I if I recall correctly, I want to say it was a billion dollar type of initiative. If I'm not mistaken, um, so can you yeah. give us any current uh, feedback?
1: Definitely. Yeah, so it was released um, over, you know, in the beginning of the fall, um, and the application is very timely, because the application actually just closed November 15th, yesterday, and so the state or the state administrative agencies, what we call SAAs, they had to apply, and so what happens is the money has to be passed through to our, um, to the local entities, and so the state can keep up to 20% of that, and then everything else has to be passed through. So that's 80% passed through, right? Um, but CIVA's role within this, even though it's administered by FEMA, we're going to help them address the cyber threats and vulnerabilities that they have in our environment, um, in our networks. We're also going to help them identify like those key vulnerabilities that they have, you know, and this includes mobility as well. You know, we have our protective uh, security visits where we'll go and we'll have these one-on-one conversations and we'll be able to find out what keeps them up at night Um, but it's also helping us kind of mitigate threats and that that approach where you know sharing is caring they're giving us information we can kind of disseminate that and this can be a collaborative effort but it was a big turnout you know when it first came out we had to do a lot of outreach to get everyone informed and to provide awareness so that we can make sure the states apply but we definitely have majority of states apply, and so I'm looking forward to that pass-through, and the awards come out December 31st or around that time, and so we'll probably hear more information uh, then.
0: Oh, that's great. Oh, well, it sounds like it was a success, so I think folks will be tuning in to kind of see what the output was, and look, if if, if state and local governments um, didn't, you know, explore that, uh, then kind of, you know, that's that's on them, right? Uh, it sounds like CISA did everything that they could, and it was up to them to expend a little bit of effort to, um, you know, leverage that program. So awesome. Well, I know we're kind of at the top of our time here, so I'll ask just for your final thoughts or anything you'd like the audience uh, to to take away or walk away with.
1: One of the things I would just encourage everyone to reach out to their regional cybersecurity advisor or their cyber state coordinator. I mean, we're a wealth of knowledge. We have a wealth of different cybersecurity services, from trainings to workshops, you know, a different assessments that we can do. Having these one-on-one conversations to where, you know, if you don't want to go to the FBI and have a conversation because they're a regulator and law enforcement, right, you can have those conversations with us, and we will help you strategize and prioritize. Because we really, you know, we're here, our mission is voluntary, and everything is at no cost. A lot of people don't know that. The taxpayers play for this. So take advantage of it.
0: We're all taxpayers. That's awesome, Ariel. Thank you so much for your time. And you heard it, folks. So uh, for sure, if you're needing to learn more about anything, candidly, uh, cybersecurity related, CISA is a great place to go. Uh, A lot of references. Um, Our good friends at ATARC are also a great source of information as well. So please do visit both ATARC and CISA. And with that, Ariel, thank you again so much for taking the time today.